constantly referencing the Old Testament and numbers of passages that many of which we haven't even heard of or or, or read before. And so it can be challenging at times, but I I hope that it's been an encouragement. I think one of the, the most important theological benefits that we see from the book of Hebrews is the fact that it addresses a false teaching that the church is currently battling. Right now, there are many churches battling a thought which has swept across the world, really. It's this thinking that the gospel merely is a mechanism by which we are saved in an eternal sense. So that was a mouthful, but here's what I mean. Many churches have come to believe that we gain entrance into God's presence through the gospel, and yet the power of the gospel does not necessarily impact our current life in the here and now. You will hear this idea explained as easy believism. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've heard the the idea of free grace theology. Essentially, it's the idea that you can accept the gospel and get some fire insurance ever having the message affect the way you live your life. You get to experience the presence of God regardless of whether or not the truths of the gospel affect your life. And so people will say things like, you know, I accepted the gospel, I accepted Christ when I was four years old. And they've tricked themselves into thinking that they will one day get to experience the glories of heaven, even though they have not lived like a child of God since they were four. And now they're in their 60s. Is that person actually a Christian? Well, Hebrews would say no. That is not the message of the gospel. The gospel does affect the way you live today. It does have an impact on your life in the here and now. It is the mechanism by which we can please God today. God has not only given us access into his presence someday far off there in eternity, but he's given us the ability to serve him here, today, in our lives. It's exactly what we see here in our passage. The gospel has equipped us to serve him from now until eternity. So we're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 to 25. We read, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may God, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So we finally reach the conclusion of the letter. And you can see that especially in verses 22, uh, 22 to 25. He first reflects on everything he has said. This is in verse 22. And he encourages this church to bear with the message that he has given to them. Other translations will say, receive this word of exhortation. The pastor of this church desires that his people will heed this exhortation in his absence. As we see in the next verses, the pastor is not present with this church. So he's writing this sermon to them. It obviously worries him, right, that the members of this church are contemplating abandoning the gospel of Christ in his absence. We've seen this over and over again throughout Hebrews. They're being tempted to forsake Christ and return to the Old Testament law. And this has put the the pastor at a worry. He wants this church to know that the that he hopes to come and see them in the near future. And he points out that Timothy has just been released and that he plans to return to see the members of this church once he meets back up with Timothy. And we see this final greeting to everyone in the church. He greets them along with all of the other members in the church in Italy. Apparently, he's writing this church from Italy and he's with a group of of Christians there and he wants this church to know that. And so that's the conclusion of the letter. Receive this word of exhortation, final greetings. He wants them to know that they need to heed this warning as they await his return. But before he gives these words of greetings, before he gives this conclusion in the letter, he offers two concluding marks of encouragement. First, we see in verses 18 and 19, there's a call to pray for this leader in the church. The pastor needs God to intervene on his behalf. And second, in verses 20 and 21, he reminds the church of the strength that we have in the gospel. In other words, our strength to live out the gospel is provided by God. Really quick, do I need to change the batteries? Hopefully that's better. Um, All right, so we're going to begin in verses 18 to 19. Here we see that as the church, we are equipped through prayer. God equips us as we come to him in prayer. So let's begin in verses 18 and 19. Here's where the author finds the necessary strength to do God's will. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly 
to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So he's asking for prayer. Two specific areas. First, he encourages him to pray for his ministry. The author here, he he wants to act honorably in all things that he does as he goes throughout his ministry. And he recognizes that he needs to seek God in prayer in order to be able to live a life of godliness. And second, what we see here is that he asks the church to pray that he might be restored to them. Seems to be a, a prayer in regards to his circumstances. He wants to be restored to the church, but right now his circumstances are prohibiting him from that. He mentioned uh, later in the chapter that Timothy has been released. It seems that there's some sort of legal issue, some sort of legal circumstance that's preventing the pastor from being with this church. And he recognizes that in order for him to be restored to this church, he needs God to intervene. So whether it has to do with his growth or whether it has to do with some sort of legal issue that has prevented him from being with this church, he recognizes that God needs to step in. God needs to work in these situations and make these things happen. This is where prayer comes into play. As servants of a sovereign king, We, you and I, are dependent on God to enable us to serve in his kingdom. We need God to step into our situations and deliver the necessary resources in order for us to serve God and to do his will. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. We want to act honorably, therefore we ask God for the ability to do so. And so I ask, do you pray for God to intervene in your life so that you can serve him effectively? Are you dependent on God to work in your life that his will might be done in and through you? You know, often we come to God with the wrong mindset as we pray to him. We have all these misconceptions of what's actually going on when we are communicating to God. For instance, sometimes we approach prayer as though it is merely or only a duty. It's merely a responsibility that we have as Christians. And so we pray out of obligation. Now to an extent, I would actually say that's a good thing to do. We ought to pray out of obligation. We ought to pray because we are commanded to pray, and sometimes that means we don't want to feel like it, but yet we, we ought to still pray. But prayer is not only an obligation. It's not merely a command that God gives us and expects us to fulfill. Prayer is not, even though we treat it this way often, prayer is not just a, a checklist, a task on the checklist that we know we need to do. It's not merely an item on the checklist that we need to accomplish in the morning and then again in the evening. It's not merely a habit that we practice every time before we read our Bibles. It's not merely a routine that we partake in before we eat a meal. It's more than a task. It's more than a habit. It's more than a routine. 
Prayer is an all-encompassing recognition that we are in desperate need for God to intervene. It's the act of coming to God with our hands open because we realize we don't have anything to offer. And this leads to another misconception that we so often bring into our prayer time. Often, we fail to recognize that we do come to God empty-handed. We come to God in prayer not realizing that we come with an empty plate, not realizing that we come with no resources. All of our resources are from God, but we so often and so quickly fail to remember that reality. I think for many of us, the reason we uh, forget those truths is because we hate those truths, right? We want to bring something to the table. We want to bring something to God that he can work with. You know, as, as the prideful human beings that we are, we have this profound tendency to come to God in prayer while at the very same time trusting not in God but in ourselves, and that may seem like a contradiction at first because it, it is. But consider what I mean here. Sometimes we think that God responds to our prayers because we come to him with remarkable faith. God listens to my prayers because of what I bring to him. I have this faith I pray with passion, and therefore he responds. I need to think carefully about this for a moment. You know, God is pleased when we come to him in faith. But the question we need to ask is, what does it actually mean to come to God in faith? Because, get this, Jesus grants promises throughout the gospel that God does respond when we come to him and we pray with, with sincere faith. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. In other words, have faith and it will be yours. Jesus does not commend us, or Jesus actually does commend us is what I mean. Jesus does commend us to come to God with faith. And here don't have time to get into the way this passage has been manipulated at times, but here God even promises that when we come to him in faith, he gives us what we request. We have to be careful. Verses like this often cause us to think that it is our faith that is accomplishing the work that only God can do. We can't be duped into thinking that God responds because I come to him with this great amount of faith. That sort of attitude does not present confidence in God. It presents confidence in self. So let me point out some obvious things here. When your confidence is in yourself, faith ceases to exist. So you're saying you have a lot of faith, but the moment you're saying, I'm going to depend on on what I have or what I bring to the table, I'm going to depend on the amount of faith that I bring, faith vanishes. 
That's because faith is actually marked by a dependence on God, not on yourself. And so let's consider what it actually means to come to God in prayer with faith. It's not, a, it's not this trust in self. When our, marks are, when, our, when our prayers are marked by faith, we are actually denying our own ability to accomplish the task that we are asking God to bring into reality. When we pray with faith, we are actually placing all of our confidence in God, not in ourself. You see, prayers marked by faith are remarkably self-forgetful. We come to God solely focused on His unfathomable capacity to do whatever He pleases. And our unfathomable capacity to not do anything we please in a real sense. We can't make things happen apart from God's grace, apart from God's intervention. You know, last Sunday morning, if you were here, Phil pointed out that our faith is in direct correlation with our understanding of who God is. The greater your view of God, the greater your faith will be. The grander your understanding of God happens to be, the more robust your faith will be. If you want great faith, if you want to be able to pray to God with sincerity, you need a great God. So when your understanding of who God is grows, your faith grows as well. You see, prayer is not a time to impress God with all of your passion. Quite the opposite. Prayer is a confession that we are not impressive. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. So every time we pray, we are actually reminding ourselves that we cannot depend on ourselves. Every time we pray, we are looking outside of ourselves and recognizing that our strength is in God. I think this is significant. John Calvin in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, says this. Prayers are not so much for God's sake as for ours. With every prayer, we are making the declaration against our stubborn wills that we are not in control. We are not in the driver's seat. We are not in power. And every time you turn your attention to God and say, God, I need you to do this for me, you are making that declaration. God is the one who is in power. So in this way, prayer is a practice of humility. It's a practice of dependence. It's a practice of reliance. So we need to pray in order to recognize that God is the one who is in control, not us. You see, we destroy our faith every time we look to ourselves and to our own abilities when we are in need. And we do this all the time. We find ourselves in a time of need to enter into a mode of desperation and self-preservation. But if you want to live a life pleasing to God, you need to recognize that self-preservation cannot be a word in your vocabulary, and it, can, it cannot be a part of your game plan. 
For the Christ follower, there is no such thing as self-preservation. There's only dependence. And the author of Hebrews recognizes these truths. And so he asks for prayer. We need God to act and therefore we must ask. So if we want to see our ministries grow in success, then we need to look to God. If you want to see success taking place in evangelism, you need to pray. You see, so quickly we are, we're so quick to, instead of looking to to prayer, we look to our, our own eloquence. We sit there and practice our arguments over and over and over within our heads. We try to get every argument we can think of in apologetics in order to win the evangelism conversation. It's not up to you. You cannot transform that person's heart. You do not have the ability or the capacity to transform someone's stubborn heart into a heart that responds to the gospel. So pray. Stop arguing and pray. Stop your practicing of elegance and pray. If we want to live a life in obedience, we must make our requests known to God. If we want to remain faithful, we must seek God. In order to be equipped to live out the Christian life, we must come to God in faith. We must depend on Him to act. He is the source all things that pertain to life and godliness. So therefore, let's look to him. Now, as we come to verses 20 to 21, here we have the encouragement that we can come to God in prayer because he is actually able to act. God has all the resources he needs to give us the power and the ability to live godly lives. And those resources are found in the gospel. Verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, when we come to God in prayer, we can be confident that He is able to supply our needs because of the resources He has through the gospel. Through the gospel, God has attained every gift that we need to live a faithful life. He equips us. He gives us the ability to live godly lives. Have you ever been hired for a job only to realize that you have no clue what you're doing? Right? That's, that's what good managers are for, though. Good managers equip you in order to accomplish your job. And so when you need to use a, 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 work sof- a software on your comp- computer in order to accomplish a job, but you open it up and it looks completely foreign to you, A good manager is going to make sure you get the equipping you need to utilize that computer software. When you have to deal with dangerous chemicals at work, 
you are given the equipment you need, you're given the instructions you need in order to handle the dangerous equipment or the dangerous chemicals. My dad actually worked in the nuclear in the nuclear power industry and he's he's been working in the nuclear power industry for my entire life. And in th- for the first 20 years of my life, he he worked at a nuclear power plant. And he was a manager and he had the responsibility of overseeing the safety department at this nuclear power plant. Now as a good manager, he had to equip his teams for their jobs. So he offered instruction, right, on the protocols related to how you're going to handle nuclear waste. He was responsible for providing protective clothing to the teams that they would need in order to, like, go into certain uh, sections of the power plant. You know, as a supervisor, you do not tell team members to do something without giving them training. Imagine if my dad just got on the phone and called someone who was brand new on the job, first day, and he told them, okay, I need you to go and clean up some biohazardous material, and I need you to go into one of these nuclear reactors in order to do it, and this person didn't have a clue what he was doing. Do you think that that individual would feel capable, let alone safe, to go and do what he was just required to do? Of course not. Right? A good supervisor looks at his team, looks at her team, and, and recognizes here she needs to equip this team in order to fulfill their job. And we cannot expect any less from God. God does not send us out on the mission to live, a go- live out the gospel in our lives without equipping us to do so. He gives us the equipment we need. He gives us the resources we need. Look back at verses 20 and 21. What has God done to make it possible to prepare us to live out the gospel? That's what we find in these verses. Here's what God has done for us. Verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought Again, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, making or working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So with that in mind, look at what we see in verse 20. First, we see that God is the God of peace. Remember, this church is neck deep in the stress of social conflicts and all sorts, of, all sorts of persecutions because of their faith. But God here is able to equip them in the midst of their difficulty by bringing tranquility to his people. In other words, when we find ourselves living in a hostile culture, our God is able to grant us peace. And notice now what this God of peace has done. He has brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. So there's three specific things here. First off, verse 20 begins by saying that God has raised Christ from the dead. Now all three of these things, this, this is just 20, verse 20 essentially summarizes all the themes of the book. 
And he begins by focusing on the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. Remember, we pointed out that Hebrews is constantly focusing on Psalm 110. Essentially, you could say this is a sermon on Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is all about the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has all authority over all of history. And this is important because it points to the reality that God, who brought Christ from the dead, is able to use that same power in order to equip us. So get what he's saying here. This is similar to what we read in Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the, de- from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies, through the Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8 and and Hebrews 13 are saying the same thing. There is resurrection power at God's right hand, and He is willing and capable of using it. He gives it to you. He equips you in order to do His will with resurrection power. So He gives us life now, this isn't just a future resurrection he has in mind. It's, it's life now. It's the ability and the power that we need now and today in order to live a life of godliness. So do you feel as though you do not have the strength to overcome the temptations of sin? That's a real temptation. And if you feel that, that's actually, believe it or not, a good thing. Because apart from God, you don't have the ability to overcome sin. That's the reality. But this power that Christ, or that God used to raise Christ from the dead is now at work in you. So there is hope to overcome sin. There is hope to walk in holiness. There is hope to remain faithful to the gospel, even when you are being faced with temptations to abandon Jesus. That hope is not found in your own power, but it's found in the Son of God who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Now as we continue in verse 20, we find this. Christ, whom God raised from the dead, is the great shepherd. Again, this is a major theme we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Here he's actually comparing Christ with Moses yet again. Christ is a better shepherd. In fact, he's a better shepherd than all the shepherds that Israel had. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that Moses was referred to as the shepherd of Israel. We see that all the kings were referred to as the shepherds of Israel. And yet, Christ is the better shepherd. He is the great shepherd who actually leads his people into the promised land. Something that Moses could not do. Something that leaders like Joshua could not do in a real, lasting sense. Yet, Christ has that ability. While Moses led the first exodus out of the slave market of Egypt, Christ leads the better exodus out of the slave market of sin. Christ is the great shepherd we read about in Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Hebrews here is also drawing on Zechariah 9, which is profound. Because in Zechariah 9, we realize that this, this shepherd who oversees the flock will do so by pouring out the blood of his covenant. This flock is protected by God, who poured out his blood for her sake. You see, God raised this great shepherd from the grave, as we see in verse 20, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And that is proof that Christ's blood is capable of of giving us the power we need to live a life of godliness. When Jesus rose, he declared that the penalty of death no longer is in existence. We've seen this theme also throughout the book of Hebrews. When Christ rose from the dead, he rose from the dead with the blood of a new covenant. He established a new covenant, a better covenant than the one that preceded, right? Moses oversaw the old covenant that could never perfect the people of God. Christ oversees a new covenant. And through this covenant, we get to enter into God's presence. Look now at verse 21. In verse 21, we see that the same God who did these amazing feats in the person of Christ, is now equipping the church. This God, who has the ability to raise the dead, is now using that same power to equip you and to equip me. The word equip here means to cause to be in a condition to function well. God has equipped us to function well as Christians. I'm sure you've heard of a placebo effect. You've heard of these sorts of tests. You'll use a placebo at times when you're trying to figure out whether or not a medication or some specific drug actually works, whether it does what it intends to accomplish or not. So a doctor will randomly distribute some legitimate drugs, along with a placebo, to a group of individuals. And now the subjects, like the test uh, subjects, don't know which pill they're receiving. They don't know if they're getting the sugar pill or if they're actually getting the Tylenol. And the goal is to determine whether or not this drug is effective. Now, it's interesting what happens so often in these situations. Because it's pretty typical that the person who has the placebo, just because they think they have the drug, begins to act as though they they took the real thing. And the reverse can be true as well. You may think that you took the placebo, but you actually took the real drug, and you begin to trick your mind into thinking that nothing has actually happened to you goes to show the power and effectiveness of the mind. Just the idea that this drug may or may not have 
worked can convince people to behave in a certain way, even if it's contrary to science. They got the real drug, they begin to act as though they didn't. They got the placebo and they begin to act as though they got the real thing. In a lot of ways, the same can be true in the gospel. You know, the more you understand the power that God expressed in Jesus, the more you understand the power at work in you. And this will make you more confident and more capable to utilize God's strength in your fight against sin. But here's the thing. God's gospel is not a placebo. It does grant us strength. It's the real thing. And you can have confidence of that. It was proven by the fact that Christ was raised by God from the dead. But when you begin to think of the gospel's power as a placebo, which we so often do, you will begin to behave as though the gospel has no bearing on your life. You will begin to behave and begin to think as though the gospel has no ability or capacity to rescue you from your current struggle against sin or your current struggle in life. Hebrews says here that God has given us every good thing that we need to do his will and appear pleasing before him. So as you begin to feel the temptations waging war against you within your mind, you have a decision to make. Are you going to recognize that through the gospel you actually have the ability to walk in holiness? Or are you going to pretend that the gospel is a placebo and you can live your life however you want? It doesn't have any effect on me. I can live however I want. And in fact, if I wanted to please God, I can't because I don't have the power to do so. When that thought begins to creep into your mind, how are you treating it? Are you waging war against those thoughts as they enter into your mind or not? Are you forcing every thought into submission or are you allowing these thoughts to run wild, unchecked? There is hope in the gospel. There is hope to overcome both these thoughts, wage war in our minds, and the actions that wage war in our bodies. There is hope to overcome any trial or any temptation. Why? Because God's resurrection power is at work in you. So hear that out. There is the ability, you do have the ability to live out the gospel no matter how strong the winds of temptation may blow against your soul. As we see here, the gospel is not merely a ticket to heaven. It is hope for today. It, the, the, the gospel gives us the power to please God in the here and now. It grants us everything that we need to live morally upright and godly lives. So do you believe that? Are you living in light of that reality? Are you recognizing the effect and the power of the gospel to work in your heart and work in your life to enable you to live out God's will? Well, this is such an appropriate ending to a book like this. 
after being exhorted to remain faithful to God over and over and over again, as we have been in the book of Hebrews, we need these reminders that we are not merely exhorted by God to live a life pleasing to him. We are given the ability and the power to do so by his grace. You see, our only hope of remaining faithful is not found in ourselves, it's found in God. This is why we pray desperate prayers. This is why we look to the gospel for strength, because we are not the ones who are capable of enabling ourselves to obey God. Only He can do that. What a greater hope can we find in this life? Our God is working on our behalf that we might fight a faithful life. So this is why right now we're going to close our time singing through this song that, that God is the one who holds us fast. God is the one who enables us to live a life pleasing to him. We have nothing to fear in this life. We have, we have all the resources we need to live a life pleasing to God because he is for us and because he is at work in our lives. Let's pray. God, we know that you are a God who, who grants us everything we need in order to please you. Yes, you called us to obedience, but you equip us to walk in obedience. 